Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Victoria Lors. Victoria is a spiritual director and co-founder of the Wild Church Network. She is also the author of the recent book, Church of the Wild, How Nature Invites Us into the Sacred. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Watashi Wa. Watashi Wa is an indie band from California. You can get connected with Victoria and Watashi Wa and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today, I have Victoria Lors with me. And Victoria, you're a spiritual director and the co-founder of Wild Church Network and Seminary of the Wild. And you do lots of other incredible work in the world. But you also recently wrote a book called Church of the Wild, How Nature Invites Us into the Sacred. I'm so looking forward to this conversation. But before we dive in, who is Victoria Lors to Victoria Lors? Oh, gosh, that's a hard question. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you don't warn me. But it's a question I feel like any spiritual director should be able to answer, it's right? It's so good. It's so good. Yeah, I'm sort of at a threshold of deepening into that identity and letting go of a lot of uh, layers of identity that I thought I was and stepping into that more more essence. I have been able to, you know, kind of hone in on a core calling, which is this connection between our our spirituality and the rest of the natural world. And that can take a whole bunch of different uh, forms, Mm -hmm. but that really is, is at the core. And I'm finding myself, you know, at a, at a point in my life where once you kind of step across a threshold and you're like, yes, this is the big, yes, I'm going to step into this. Then all kinds of doors open up. Mm -hmm. And after you do that, then you have to start saying no. (laughs) And so it becomes overwhelming and it's kind of gotten to that place where I spend so much time now with people. Uh, A lot of it's on zoom because there's people from all over Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. the country and the world actually. And so I'm spending so much time with people that I've sort of, have hardly any time doing the core practices that I'm, um, you know, sort of advocating for, Mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. is spending extended immersive time in the natural world. Mm -hmm. So I would say that I am uh, a mother, a a pastor, a a friend to uh, all kinds, to a larger beloved community than what I knew at a younger age that includes the little baby uh, fawn and her mama that are laying outside of my window right now. Right now? Right now. You want to see them? Oh, my goodness. I would love to see them. Just hanging out? Just oh hanging out. Can you see her? You're, yeah. You're like, you're There's a deer whisperer. <laughs> kind of like that. <laughs> they They know this is a safe place. And uh, the babies, if they get, this one's injured. She's got an injured leg. And so mama will leave her here often 
while she goes grazing and come back for her later on. So it's a, <laughs> it's a gift to be in relationship with them. Incredible. Well, I'm glad that they are able to be featured on the podcast. <laughs> yes. Yeah. They can't, maybe you can't see them, but, um, oh gosh, her little legs are all the way stretched out. She's oh, so, geez. feels so safe. <laughs> That's awesome. So let's talk about the book. Mm-hmm. You're obviously no stranger to theology. You've been in the theological world or the religious world for quite some time. What is something that you learned about theology that maybe you didn't know before mm-hmm. while you were writing the book? Yeah, big time. I think one, one of the things writing the book that I didn't realize until I started writing it is that I had encountered the sacred I had encountered God, I had encountered the embedded sort of embodied Christ in all things throughout my life. And I really didn't have language for it. I didn't, Mm. I didn't know how to value it as, you know, authentic spiritual connection with, with the larger story, with God, with Christ, with uh, the holy that is in all things. But as I started writing the book, stories kept coming back and going, oh, wow, this place that I had when I was a teenager that I went to, this sort of secret place where I would go and just be. I didn't really have any religious or spiritual language for it. I just knew it was an essential practice for me. And so writing the book was, I was able to look backwards and say, you know, this has been this uh, reconnection with our, with my faith and, and our faith and the natural world has always been there in my life. The other part that really drew me to write the book was recognizing that this deep, intimate connection with the natural world has always been part of my spiritual tradition as well. Mm. You know, I'm, I, uh, I became an official sort of evangelical Christian in my 20s and went to a seminary in my late 20s, early 30s, and uh, worked in churches in different sort of post-evangelical communities, uh, mm. often independent, like Terra Nueva kind of communities. Okay. And it wasn't like I, ha- I heard much explicit, you know, like God isn't, God isn't a tree. You know, you're, you're a pantheist. I didn't hear that so much explicitly, but it was sort of this implicit thing of like, um, you know, nature is a beautiful place to go do a retreat or something, mm-hmm. but it isn't, but it was never integrated. I never integrated it. Nobody within the communities that I um, served or, or churches that I went to before I became a pastor, it was just sort of like not important. And so I kind of held this deep connection with God that I had in the natural world. And then later, as a, uh, I started a youth, youth climate nonprofit with my son. And even then, I held my spirituality separate from my actual mm. spiritual connection with the natural world, very in two separate hands. And so um, there was a lot of theological um, pieces that came together as I started looking at that more intentionally. And that's when I realized, and that's why I read the book, really, to say this, this deep, intimate connection, kindred connection with the natural world, more than appreciation, more than seeing, you know, sort of God reflected in nature as if God were separate. It's seeing that, seeing that connection theologically is what really drew me deeper into this work. I want to put a bookmark with kind of that conversation because I've got a, a following question to that, but I want to ask that question later on sure. uh, because that it, th- that brought up a, a, a certain kind of theological question that I'm very curious 
that maybe you discovered while you were writing the book or even in this journey for you to see this interconnectedness with the sacred and nature. With that said, though, so this is this your first book, by the way? Yes. First published book? Yes. It is. I was looking at your 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 artist page or whatever on Amazon and I didn't see anything else. So I kind of figured that <laughs> this might be the first one. So obviously, with that being the case, then, what did you learn about yourself while you were writing mm. your very first book? Hmm. It was really a stepping into my own voice. And I had always liked writing. I was, I've written a lot in my life, like written, uh, you know, um, uh, funding applications. <laughs> and uh, when I was at World Vision, I wrote white papers and uh, issue papers and things like that throughout my whole life. I'd been aware that I enjoyed writing, and, but I was always a little afraid of it. And I can't tell you why. It was uh, irrational kind of fear. It's sort of that fear of stepping into your own calling. <laughs> Now that I look backwards, and so I think the biggest thing I learned is that I I uh, I have a voice, <laughs> and I can own that uh, without without hesitation, without sort of uh, something that I did throughout a lot of my life that I think a lot of women do mm -hmm. is kind of dismiss that voice, and mm -hmm. and uh, you know often I would stand behind others and support them, including my own son in the mm -hmm. nonprofit mm -hmm. work we did, and I enjoy that. It's not that I don't. It's not that it made me uncomfortable. Maybe it did, now that I'm saying that out loud. I think it, part of that was just being uncomfortable in my own, with my own voice and my own message. I mean, the book definitely weaves a lot of teachers uh, together. So it's not like anything was uh, super, you know, that I came up with on my own. Mm -hmm. It's definitely weaving together uh, people that have influenced me throughout my life in a particular way through my own story. And that my story is is important. Like I had my, the editor uh, at Broadleaf, I was kind of like, oh good, we can do all these things and I can bring all these different people in to write chapters. And she's like, no, I, I want your voice. <laughs> I want to mm. hear about this because there's not many women in this space, she said, although I think there are quite a few. Mm -hmm. um, there aren't many women's stories out there that are holding this space and we really want to hear your story woven throughout it. So that was a bit of a challenge to push through and not just talk about it but talk about, um, but to, but to encounter it through my own story. That mm. was a, that was something I learned and has, and has changed me. I love that. I love that. It certainly obviously exercised that muscle that maybe it felt like had been underdeveloped for obviously many different reasons, but mm -hmm. you're able to strengthen that. And, and I'm hoping that in the future, as you continue your career, that you're able to continue to strengthen and exercise that muscle because I think it's very important. I think it is important for you, you and other women and lots of other people to be a part yeah. of this conversation, um, especially those who have been excluded from that conversation for a really long time. Amen. So you construct this concept of Church of the Wild throughout the book. And I'm very curious, what is Church of the Wild? Like if you were in an elevator and somebody came in and they find out you wrote this book and you had only a minute or so to tell them about <laughs> Church of the Wild, what would you tell them? Yeah. Well, um, it's basically a way to develop spiritual practices that reconnect us with the larger beloved community. You know, I, I feel like there's something that we are missing, not only, uh, well, let me say this another way, the, the separation of, of our spirituality from the rest of the natural world is, um, 
really dangerous. And it's dangerous, obviously, for the planet to, in order to, um, you know, sort of colonize any people or any place, you need to de de depersonalize the other. Mm. And you need to, uh, you know, sort of, sort of give yourself permission to uh, take from and, and, um, and treat as a resource, depersonalize, uh, take it away from the I-thou relationship. Like mm -hmm. that has to be severed in order for you to have that kind of um, authoritarian supremacy, underlying su a human supremacy that is not unlike the white supremacy. It's this human supremacy that all, only our needs matter. And therefore, everybody else who's not human is a resource to us. You know, so that that core severance not only has damages the earth, which we can see easily through the climate crisis and the uh, the species extinctions and the biodiversity loss, but we can. But what we don't see as well is the is the great loss to our own spirituality and to our own sense of being human by seeing ourselves as separate from the rest of the um, interconnected alive world. It's, it's a deep, um, it's sort of like with, within white supremacy, like there's a, there's a huge loss for those of us in the dominant culture, as mm -hmm. well as the, the more obvious mm -hmm. and tragic uh, loss for those who are othered. But for those who are doing the othering, it's a huge loss of, uh, you know, it's, it's a huge moral loss. It's a huge, you know, just sort of like aliveness loss. Mm -hmm. And so, so that's a big part of it, too. It reminds me of some of the conversations I've had on here and elsewhere with people who are involved in the field of embodiment. And they talk about how so often we talk about our body as an it and even just right. reframing, reconfiguring that re that language to my body as a she or mm -hmm. a him yes. or they or whatever sort of mm -hmm. personal pronoun we use. Um, for ourselves and to be able to also use that same language for our bodies is such yeah, a, an important way to decolonize the way we mm -hmm. even think about our bodies. So I love how you extend that even to the way that we talk about nature. I was just at this lecture. I am a part of a seminary called United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. And they there was a pastor who was doing a lecture recently, uh, just a couple of days ago. And she was talking about how with the plants that she has in her garden, in her backyard, she gives them names. Mm -hmm. And that's a way for her to, again, reconfigure mm -hmm. her relationship with nature. And, and so I love that you bring that part up of the personalization of nature is such an important part of how we decolonize the way we even think about it. Yeah, and I think there's, there's like a resistance to like, oh, you're just anthropomorphizing, you know? You're just, you don't, you don't know what those deer outside your window are feeling, you know? And it's like, well, I don't know what you're feeling. I don't know what my children are feeling. <laughs> Barely know what I'm feeling. And so it's, it's like, it's a tool of disconnection. <laughs> you know, yes, we're probably wrong, but we are also, pro we, we also are very likely right. You know, that because mm -hmm. we're alive mammals, the, the deer that are laying outside my, my, win my window right now, I, I can feel, you know, I can feel their, the mother's maternal care for the little mm -hmm. one. I can mm -hmm. feel the little one's fear. I can feel, you know, and, and we can trust that. And so by distrusting that connection that we have, it further disconnects us. 
And so that little things like just calling, you know, like I've named all these little deer <laughs> mm-hmm, and I mm-hmm. know that they're my names for them, but it's something that, that increases relationship because I think mm-hmm. what we're really working from, you know, when I did that, let the earth be glad kit 30 years ago, <laughs> I was, I was helping to move the theological orientation from uh, dominion or domination mm-hmm. into stewardship. Mm-hmm. And now what I feel like the calling is, is to move from stewardship, which is still a bit one up, that mm-hmm. we're the ones mm-hmm. stewarding the others, into relationship. Mm. And so it's moving into relationship with the others that, that I think is at the core of this. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. it's more than, you know, taking care of this tree and pruning her and making sure she has the right nutrients and whatever. Like that's super important. But it's, but it's moving into like this tree and I are actually in a symbiotic relationship. Mm-hmm. And the more I can um, lean into that and ignite my own gift of imagination, which we tend to also um, dismiss, you know, that, oh, that's mm-hmm. only in your imagination mm-hmm. versus, mm-hmm. you know, how does God speak to us? It, it requires the gift of imagination. And so into deepening into actual relationship, knowing this tree as, a, as an other, as a thou, mm-hmm. and, and listening to the tree. And, you know, my daughter named the tree outside of our, of our window, um, outside of our house when she was in elementary school. And that, that tree's name was Leonardo. And she would whisper to that tree. I would watch her outside the window. And, and she had a deep relationship with this tree. And I think a lot of children do and a lot of people do. And, and so. So part of Church of the Wild is to create spiritual practices like learning to listen to a tree (laughs) that Mm -hmm. may sound a little bit, you know, you might feel a little bit uncomfortable and silly at first, but eventually it's like it, it, you're, you're reconnecting a severed relationship. And, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. I love the, the etymology of religion is just religios. It's ligios is like a ligament. It's a connector. Mm -hmm. You're reconnecting to to other people, reconnecting to God, and reconnecting to other others who are who we're in intimate relationship with, we've just forgotten. So mm-hmm. there must be something about humans <laughs> that needs to create religion because we've always had religion since since humans have been tracked, mm-hmm. right? And so we must know at a deep level that we need to remind ourselves. We need to remember remember ourselves back into the whole constantly, back into relationship with with God, with ourselves, with one another, and with the more than human world. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I love about your work with Church of the Wild is that you actually are getting people out in nature and getting them involved and actually having them practice their religious practices or rituals mm-hmm. out in nature and, and connecting them back to nature in that way. But with that said, there has been over centuries this emphasis of the church being indoors. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily always been the case. A lot of the early, especially obviously in Christianity, many of those early Christians were outside. They were, mm-hmm. their practices were very much deeply involved with nature. So can you talk about, and I don't, I don't remember if I saw it so much in your book, but like, is there like a history of how we got to this point where when we think about the church, we don't think about mm-hmm. being out in nature, but rather we think of these four walls and a rooftop and right. an actual building and that we're inside of that. 
disconnected right. from nature. Yeah. Can you talk about there had to have been some sort of history that led us to the point of where we're at right now, where yeah, we totally absolutely. disconnect church from nature? Yes. Um, I'm not a historian, but I have read from other historians. Um, some of those pieces that I can piece together, uh, I'll just tell a couple of them. One was, and, and they're both related to the agenda of empire <laughs> and the mm-hmm. agenda of, of colonization. That as, as Christianity as a state religion was growing, it, it began to lose its impact when it became a state religion. And there's all kinds of people that can talk about this. But one of the ways is they would, when, when uh, empires would take over new places, you would, they would have to disconnect people from their land, like just mm-hmm. sort of obviously, we've done it in this country. And mm-hmm. in disconnecting people from their land, they're trying to bring them into the cities where they can have more control. And where they couldn't have control, they would rebrand it in a way, you know, so, so people that were still out in the, in the countryside were rebranded as pagans, which all mm-hmm. pagan means is out in the country. Mm-hmm. And so it was either by weaponry of violence throughout history that people were, uh, that the, the sort of like a weapon of mass destruction is what Christianity became. You know, it was just another tool of empire to force people into submission. And so that it was used that way. And part of that is to bring people in for control. Like in the Roman Empire, um, the, the architectural, um, here's another piece, is the architectural um, style of the time for houses or, or other places where there would be a very controlled courtyard garden in the center of like a house. And that would be very manicured, very controlled. And all the windows in, in, these, um, in these mansions or in these houses would face inward into the courtyard. And the windows facing out, would, there would be no windows facing out. It would all be facing inward. And the churches started to use that architectural you know, style. And so the, the, even if there were windows, they were covered by stained glass. And so there's at least an implicit message in that, that what is holy is inside. Mm-hmm. And therefore, what is outside is not holy. And mm-hmm. so it was at least an implicit message. And in times in history, it was explicit. Mm-hmm. And I think it's all, you know, various versions of control, you know, like there was always edge, edge walkers throughout history, and they were often the monastics who would go out into nature and not and not and meet out in nature on purpose, partly, I think, to connect with the sacred that is that is in the wilderness, as well as to, you know, counter some of that um, controlling, they were doing some decolonization even back then. Can you talk, and you're sort of touching on this, but I really want to dive into this, of mm-hmm. with doing church indoors, how does that change the way we relate to the planet? Mm-hmm. It does. I mean, it, it's that. It's that we're saying that what is, you know, an example I do talk about in the book is when I was a pastor of a church in the Rocky Mountains, a beautiful, beautiful place, you know, that it was a church that did have windows <laughs> because it was so beautiful outside the window. But it was still like, this is a beautiful uh, environment, isn't that word, environment for us to do the holy thing. So we'd go, we would, you know, have retreats and you, you go to a beautiful retreat center that's out in nature, but all of the things that are, that are, um, you know, important, <laughs> that are sacred, that are part of our religious agenda, 
happen inside the billy and then and then people can go on hikes or whatever at their free time you know it's just even the way we structure a retreat often is is built on this assumption that that what the preacher is saying what the professional christians i call us <laughs> what the professional christians are saying this is what we're going to do and this human centric exercise or uh, experience this is this is this is discipleship this is the thing that we that we do that we define as church and everything outside is like extra and so it's it's like it's like built into everything it's built into our language it's built into the things that we do and it's kind of unconscious we aren't really intentionally saying oh you know out there is devoid of god although some probably say that but most of us wouldn't say that we just don't really have the words for it we it's like we aren't fully awake around it I'm not sure if I'm hitting on it, but I can feel it. Right, <laughs> I can right. feel what you're wanting to dig into, that there are, even, even like a lot of the um, songs are about, um, you know, we can, we can, and I can't think of any specific, but a lot of uh, worship songs or, or, or ways that we see nature is like seeing God reflected in nature. It still is like nature's just this, this screen where we see the holy things, you know, mm -hmm. and there's just such resistance and, and name calling around like pagans or, or animism or, you know, pantheism. There's, it's, it's actual name calling to keep us, there's like such a fear about it. Mm -hmm. And I've, mm -hmm. I've felt it in with other pastors, just like talking about my work. And then they're like, you know, like you can just kind of see their eyes get a little scared, like, oh man, you're one of those, uh, you know, uh, out, you're outside of the, you know, the the construct of the of the Christian tradition, when it's so deeply embedded in the Christian tradition that we've we've it's like we're missing part of what our own tradition is even about by being mm -hmm. so afraid of it. It's it's like the natural world in a lot of those Christian communities is only valuable because of its aesthetics rather than right. its value being in that it is a neighbor an actual neighbor that we can right. have a relationship uh, with yes and what what church of the wild does is is move into their co-congregants and their preachers you know so mm. in in a lot of the uh, wild church gatherings and certainly in the ones that i've led the core of it is this like 45 minute to an hour where everybody goes outside of the circle and, and wanders on their own in, in nature. Off we encourage, if it doesn't damage the soil, to go off the trail, to allow yourself to be drawn to a particular other being and just be there. Just, mm. just notice, just allow what comes up. I have a practice in the back of my book called Terra Divina that's after Lectio Divina. It's like instead of allowing the contemplative you know message of of a passage of scripture it's allowing the contemplative message and mm. and really conversation re relationship with this uh with this other to to arise within you and this is something that is deeply embedded in our tradition and when you say terra divina terra meaning like earth right in, in yes Latin. yeah That's so divine okay. earth divine earth just as uh, jacob said when he woke up from his dream right it's like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that I'm, this is holy ground. Let's, let's, this, the ground we are standing on is holy and I didn't mm -hmm. realize it. Well, let's dig into that a little bit more. So you talked about how 
doing church indoors changes the way that we relate to the planet, then how does doing church in the way that you just described where you can kind of wander around and allow the rest of nature be co-congregants with you, how does that change the relationship and w- with with the planet? How, how does doing church that way change our yeah. relationship to the planet? I think what happens is, um, let me just give an example. Like, we are all heartbroken for, for the people in Ukraine right now. We can't help but being, uh, being or, or during, you know, or when we hear about another, another police killing of a person of color, you know, like we, we are heartbroken. But we don't really feel it, right? If it's our mother or our, or our uh, spouse or our child who was the one who was just hit by a bomb or shot by a police, it's, it's a depth of grief and lament that, that you just don't feel when you're not in direct relationship. Mm-hmm. No, and it's, it's creating direct relationship with the other beings of our place. That, that not only, you know, like the way we have structured like private property, you know, is like mm-hmm. the foundation of this country. How can you belong to place if you don't have land that belongs to you? You know, it's mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. It, it's just such a, a paradigm that is deeply built within our culture that mm-hmm. to shift that means that we actually belong to this place, you know, that that place doesn't belong to us. Mm-hmm. And so as we develop relationship with a particular tree, like in Ojai, our sanctuary, quote unquote, air quotes right now, our sanctuary was completely burned up with the, with the fire, in the Thomas fire in mm-hmm. 2017. And so trees that we had, you know, gone to and sort of sat under and listened to and, and observed and felt the presence of Christ in, to go back to that tree who has been burnt up is a whole different experience than just sort of seeing the landscape of, of blackness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So again, it's all about relationship. It's relation. It's radical relationality. Right, <laughs> as right. Whitehead would say. I, I'm glad you actually even pointed out the piece about private property. I literally today saw this quote from Marx and Marx. I don't even know where Marx said this, but it was just a quote I saw on Twitter, but uh, Karl Marx says, from the standpoint of a higher socioeconomic formation, the private property of, a particu- of particular individuals owning the earth will appear just as absurd as the private property of owning a human owning another human mm-hmm. enslavement. Yeah. So this, like even Marx is like identifying that this idea of private property of one who is in ownership of a piece of earth is going to be just as absurd and immoral and unethical as the way that we think about a person owning another mm. person. And I, I think that's a really, ra- he's using a radical reorientation of how he understands land, the earth and the planet. And specifically, obviously, how then we do economics in relationship to right. the land and the planet um, if, if we re-relate to it in, in that way. It's really, really fascinating that you brought that up because I literally saw that quote today. Yeah, and there's like an arrogance of, of like, oh, I bought this tree and I'm going to plant this tree in my yard. <laughs> like, just think of the arrogance, the levels of arrogance of that really simple sentence that I've probably said many times, you know? Right, right. But to start to decolonize our own language regarding, you know, how, I love how Richard Rohr says, you know, how you, how you treat the stone is how you treat all things. How you mm. love the stone is how you love all things. And I remember loving that 
quote, but not really getting it. It's like, I don't get that. I don't. Mm-hmm. And now I'm starting to sort of get it <laughs> that it's like, really, how we, how we treat this little deer and this tree and the soil and the, and the air and the, oz- you know, and the ozone and the atmosphere is how we treat all things. And that's really the, the core of it, isn't it? It's the core of every mm-hmm. religion. Mm-hmm. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Like mm-hmm. it's right there. It's nothing new. Right. <laughs> it's like how do we actually radically live that? And and that's in a world of predation. That's another thing. Like, like it's not that we can never, you know, go back to some fantasy of, you know, where we can never well, we have to eat others. Like that's how life sustains itself. It's just the way life is. Every mm-hmm. being to stay alive another day, another being's life is taken. And that's a radical core truth but it's but that's very different than i can deforest this entire you know hundred thousand mm-hmm, acres mm-hmm. because i i want to because i'm making money because of whatever you know it's there's a there's a reciprocity relationship that robin wall kimmer and others um articulate so beautifully that we ha- that we need to learn how to we need to relearn how to live in that in that sacred reciprocity relationship not only with other humans but with all beings that reminds me that last piece there about you know a, a a organism must die for another organism to be able to be sustained and if you watch the rest of nature do that very process you see a certain kind of relationship that nature has to life and death that is very different than a colonized person's right. and a colonizer's relationship to life and death. Mm-hmm. There's something about uh, the colonized imagination around death, especially, mm-hmm. and how we relate to death that seems very at odds with the death that ends up sustaining other organisms. Mm-hmm. beyond ourselves and i think it would do us especially especially white people for us to reimagine the way we think about death and especially mm-hmm. as our death relates to the sustainment um or the sustainability of the planet mm-hmm. that goes on beyond us agreed if that's making any sense no i i feel you i think that are you know it's like this um addiction to comfort you know it's like we don't even get get to denial of death it's like we are as a culture just addicted to our own comfort so even even just which is another thing church of the wild kind of encourages is to meet outside even if it is too hot even if it is raining and if it is too cold like like we have this false separation from the rest of the world from we have this idea that we should not be uncomfortable we should not be prey you know god forbid that we might be mm-hmm. you know have a have a predator in our neighborhood like we we want to eliminate all the other predators because we cannot be ever seen as prey there's just something that's super unbalanced about that that's part of that human exceptionalism mm-hmm. that is uh dangerous yeah and so and so even you know i mean it's so deeply embedded in our culture that do anything to avoid discomfort avoid death and in doing so we're actually causing a lot more death around Mm -hmm. us and Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, even just there's a chapter in my book um, called Love is as Strong as Death. It, it's kind of saying that even like within the climate movement, I saw it, that the more, you know, it's like there's this message of like, you better recycle because we're going to save the planet. You know, <laughs> there's human exceptionalism at its uh, most absurd but it doesn't mean we don't recycle. It means we do. It means we we continue to do all of these important things to lessen our impact on all the others, and to and to come into right relationship with all the others. But by not by by believing that this little thing that we're doing is going to save is going to uh, avoid the death that we're looking at. I mean, we're we're already past a, a tipping point that we don't want to admit, and so something has mm-hmm. to shift. And the more you, there's like an anxiety of trying to not face that reality. And that keeps you from mm-hmm. actually entering into loving relationship. Because it, it, it's like, it, I don't feel neutral about it. I, I feel so deeply, oh, so much grief about what we're, what the damage that we've caused. And, mm-hmm. you know, how, even just hearing when the IPCC report came out, what, yesterday, the day before. and. And hearing, pe- mm-hmm. uh, you know, people talk even more seriously about this. Like this is this is at a level of like evil <laughs> to not do anything about it, mm-hmm. and to know mm-hmm. what kind of challenges it takes to actually do what needs to happen in a shorter period of time. And when I think about your generation and younger generations and my kids and you know the generations of these of these deer that are to come, um, it it's overwhelming emotionally overwhelming and all we can do not now there's so much to do if we avoid the grief we can never enter into the other side you know like even doing a mm-hmm. as we're as we're entering into lent today <laughs> i would usually in church of the wild only hold a, a a holy saturday service let people go to their own churches any other churches there's lots of places to go to easter sunday service there are less number of Good Friday services, but um, I would hold Holy Saturday, the day of grief. Like, like you can't enter into mm-hmm. new life until you actually give, give the time to that grief. And so we are in a time of grief mm-hmm. and of lament and of opening up and allowing ourselves to empty so that we might have a larger container to love for what is coming. Mm-hmm. This episode of A People's Theology is brought to you by United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Are you considering exploring your faith more deeply, or are you called to ministry but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you? When you come to United, you join a community that is intentionally open, socially aware, and theologically adventurous. United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs. Whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship. And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule. Attend on campus or online, part-time or full-time. Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash a people's theology or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi-faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. You briefly mentioned, you know, that there's 
so many things that need to be done when it comes to climate change. And I do think like everybody can do their small part and everybody's small part looks different depending on the person. But one of those small things that you do is Wild Church. And you've alluded to this and talked just briefly about it throughout this this conversation. But can you talk more about what Wild Church movement is and what exactly is it that you do? Uh, I'm always really interested in all the very innovative and interesting ways that people are doing church that are very, very different than what we traditionally think about with church. And I think Wild Church movement is one of those things. So can you talk a little bit about what it is and what does that even look like on a weekly or you know, however it looks like on a regular basis? Yeah, the um, I think I'll just tell it through my own narrative, and then and then add in what's happening in the movement. I first started a church of the wild in 2015. I had heard of a forest church movement happening in England, but I I searched and couldn't find anybody else at that time in the United States, and I didn't really know what they did. I had just sort of been imagining it for um, a few years. And so uh, my last day at the church that I was serving as associate pastor, I had been talking around this, you know, just sort of theologically for a couple years as associate pastor whenever I preached. And, uh, you know, like, for example, every single spiritual leader in both testaments were called into wilderness, like actual dirt and and creeks, (laughs) wilderness, before they stepped into their leadership role at a pivotal time in, in history. But as when I left that church, a group of people gathered around me and they're like, that church you've been talking about outside, like, do that. That's the church we want to go to. And I was mm-hmm. all, uh, I'm making it up. <laughs> I can't really just do that. And so we talked about it for a couple months and I just, we just started it, you know, and just started meeting. And what we, what we did, what I, is, is a elongated conversation. It's moving it from a sermon into a whole conversation. And so the beginning part is we gather outdoors, um, you know, off the path, not some, some even gather in parking lots, you know, just to see where the, where the blackbirds roost or, but gather outside in your, in your wildest space in your community. And the first part is a, is, you know, people do different things, but there could be a prayer song, a a welcoming, a invitation, a land acknowledgement, uh, gratitude for the, this place and kind of centering ourselves in place. And then there's an invitation for people. So instead of a sermon, it's more of an invitation of like, you know, a few minutes of talking about here's, you know, this week we're going to talk about lament, for example. And uh, so go out into, into this space, into this place, go off the tra- trail if you feel called. Feel yourself called into a place that, that is grieving or that is um, hurting, and just be there in that place and come back in 45 minutes to an hour. (laughs) And people would journal there, they would uh, write a poem, they would just be and meditate, they would observe, they would feel their their heart rate lower, (laughs) and they would enter into some kind of relational um, experience with this place that they were that they felt uh, drawn to. And then they would come back and we would take time around the circle in a council kind of style where each person would share their experience. And there's something about that piece is really important to have your experience be witnessed because what, and then the the sermon becomes 
you know, what you've heard from the grasshopper, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, what you've heard from the divine through the grasshopper, what you've heard from, from and through God and this relationship with this grasshopper, and then sharing that with others, you know, both witnessing what, what their stories are and what your story is. And then ending that with a benediction or some kind of prayer and a commitment. You know, in, when I was a pastor in indoor churches, you know, the benediction is, is go out. Now go bring this, mm -hmm. bring this holiness that you've experienced together here out. And this is, and this is kind of like you're already out. You know, you're already out there. Continue to live this in, in, in this place that we've been called. It's in placing ourselves. It's not just this space. It's like our, our, our tradition, our Christian tradition is all about um, embodiment, embodying in this, in this place, incarnation. Mm -hmm. We're an incarnational religion, and yet we can kind of forget place and go straight into some heavenly space. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of different, you know, within three months of starting this, this Church of the Wild, I started to meet other pastors who had left churches, who had left their buildings. You know, maybe they still uh, led a church, but they would like almost covertly have this other community that they were starting uh, where they lived, which might be in another in another community, but they and what the kinds of practices they were they were envisioning, they felt like they were alone, like they were just making it up too. And uh, we started meeting, and that's how the Wild Church Network began. We every month we'd meet on Zoom, and every month there were we would double in size, you know. Wow. And um, and now it's been several, you know, what five about five years, five six years since we have had the Wild Church Network. And now there's a few thousand people who are wanting to learn more. And it's kind of the mm -hmm. next wave of people who are wanting to learn from those who have sort of been making things up. Mm -hmm. um, so there are some churches that are more liturgical, you know, that are kind of bringing the liturgy from the, from the ELCA or from the Episcopal Church and adapting it to include the larger beloved community. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's, there's more that are, you know, more activists. They'll, they'll do more activist kind of work. There are some that are centered around community gardens. There are some that are more contemplative, you know, the, and there's what's curious to me is that there's a lot of churches who do kind of what I've done, only they had totally different uh, uh, teachers, totally different experiences to get to make those decisions. So, but there's a lot of similarity in that, that, that big time of us, of each person having that alone space in, in nature and coming back to share it is part of um, most of the wild churches. Mm -hmm. But we keep saying within the Wild Church Network that, that there's really not a how-to. It's more of a, you know, sort of giving yourself an inner permission to acknowledge your own sort of like calling to create a, a gathering in your community that's unique to your place, that's unique to your own gifts as a leader, that's unique to your community, that uses language of your community. And so, you know, we learn from each other's stories and we encourage each other in what's emerging. So it's like we're observing what's emerging versus making it happen, mm -hmm. <laughs> that, that there's a larger story going on here that we're just part of. I love, 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 love how contextual it can be that any church can start participating in this. It doesn't take much, right? <laughs> like the, <laughs> the, uh, the place where you do it already exists. You don't have to make it. The, the building, if you will, is outside of the building. It already exists. Right. So yeah, you don't even if really you're in a very urban much. area. Exactly. There's not much you already have to do. And it really just comes down to it, it comes down to 
just simply going out, paying attention, listening to the other, obviously Mm -hmm. in this case being nature, and just being attentive to it and Ah, listen and allow it be the liturgy that shapes you and your worship that that particular Sunday or whenever Mm -hmm. it is. Yes. Amen. So I want to go back to that bookmark question that I said at the beginning. I think you've like sort of touched on this bits and pieces, but I really want to dive into it. But one of the things that I've been thinking about, especially as I see what's happening um, with climate change, as I see the reports obviously coming out, is we can no longer continue having the same theology We can no longer continue to have the same sort of epistemologies, pedagogies, like everything has to change. Remember Brian McLaren um, wrote a book years ago, like a decade ago or so about, I think that was titled Everything Must Change. And I really think that that has to be true. Like we literally have to change the way we do liturgy, theology, ecclesiology, epistemology, everything has to change um, if we're going to take this seriously. And in a lot of cases, that might mean we have to radically think different about how we think about God, Jesus, whatever it might be. And and in some cases, that might mean that we have to start dipping our toes into things that may have may have historically been deemed as heresy or something. If we really want to adequately address what's happening with the planetary destruction and yeah. So I'm kind of curious, like, how you think about that. Like, how does theology have to change? You've talked a little bit about how it seems like at times you've been, like, described or at least, like, sort of insulted as a pantheist. And, like, and and maybe, like, those things are true. And, like, maybe it requires, like, if we're going to adequately, and I could be wrong, but maybe if we're going to adequately address something like climate change as severe as it is, then maybe that means that we do have to start conceiving of God in a pantheist way rather than the classical theist way. So I'm just curious, like when you think about like everything that has to change in order to adequately address planetary destruction, like what are the different ways that you think are just, we radically have to think about that differently. Maybe it's about God, Jesus, whatever it might be. But anyway, I'm just very curious about that. Well, I mean, you said it, everything, everything, everything. And that can feel overwhelming. So, you know, it's like when I first started doing climate work, I was so overwhelmed. I couldn't even buy any food. Like I was like, I don't even know what to do anymore. It's paralyzing. But I think, you know, so what the way we need to be as a species has to radically change. The way our religion has to has to support that and has to live within it. I mean, the Christian religion has been has been cited by a lot of people as being part of why we're in this problem in the first place. But it's that thing of mm-hmm. like the way that we have gotten into this, the worldview, the way of thinking, the way of being, the way of living got us into this problem. We absolutely can't get out of it. You know, like Einstein <laughs> memeology says, mm-hmm. we, we, we can't have the same way of thinking. And if that means, um, and that means we need to lean into what we've been afraid of. You know, we need something in what we've decided was not allowed, like let's just say pantheism. That's not allowed, that's heresy. There's something in that that got us to this place. <laughs> so I love how you frame this. It's like we, we need to be especially attentive to those places in the cracks 
as Bio Okumalase talks about, that those places where that have been hidden, that have been shadowed, that have been set aside and, and not allowed is, is blocking something that we need access to. And so it does take um, some courage to look into those very, very exact, precise places. And that's probably where, and listen to those people that have been silenced, like you said in the beginning of this show. You know, listen to those voices who, who are radically on the edge, who, who we would have, who the Christian uh, orthodoxy 50 years ago would have said, absolutely, those people are out. And those edges are starting to disintegrate. And mm -hmm. yeah, I think that's, I mean, there's so many areas, I don't even know where to start. I'll just kind of pick one that I talk about in my book. You know, it's, it's it's both big ways of thinking and very little, like the very little details, like like calling a tree it versus she or mm -hmm. he or or they. <laughs> um, those little those little pieces make a difference. So, um, you know, one of the things that I that was like a mind blower for me that I, that is in the center of my book is this is this interpretation, uh, this translation of the word word. <laughs> in the first the first uh chapter of the gospel of john in the beginning was the word mm -hmm. um as i researched that word uh i found out that the word in in greek is is logos and that that word logos mm -hmm. up up until the fourth century which coincidentally is when constantine made christianity the state religion uh, that word was translated into latin as the word that means conversation and um, it was changed from this word that means conversation into the word that means word for what I'm proposing is a political mm. reason. So it, it just changes everything, you know. In the beginning was the conversation, and the conversation mm -hmm. was with God, and the conversation was God mm. is inherently relational versus in the beginning was the word, the word that I, the, the patriarchy, is telling you is the word. I, the one in control, the, the patriarchs, the... Um, the emperor is telling you is the word. I know the word. It's, it's, it's very much a authoritarian one-way kind of theology <laughs> versus a theology that is conversational, that, that allows the voices on the edges, not only allows them, but it encourages those dissident voices to be able to get a bigger picture of what we're dealing with here. And I think that's the only way through. Like The, the only way through this crisis is very local is very relational, is very much um, emerging <laughs> through us. It's emerging through us. It's not going to be decided by the Pope as much as I love him. <laughs> it's not going to be decided by a bunch of people at the UN or the National Council of Churches or, you know, a bunch of pastors getting together. Like, it's going to emerge through each of us. And, and the voices that have been shut down, those cracks, those dark places where we're afraid to go, that's where the wisdom's really going to come. You know, indigenous peoples whose voices are starting to, starting to come back. Like, we absolutely need those voices. They, they have wisdom that we have lost access to. And so it's from those places mm -hmm. that I think the way through will become clear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the sort of way I think about it is that, for example, the theology that has caused or even contributed to this problem cannot be the, the same theology that is the solution to it as well. Yeah, there it is. And fill in the blank. It might be the same, the, the economics, the... Everything, education. The, the, 
the philosophy, the metaphysics, the pedagogy, yeah. whatever it the is. The science. Like it, the, yeah. The, yeah, the science that has contributed to this problem cannot be the same solution. So yeah. we really the do ethics. have to reimagine so yeah. many of these different things um, for, for us to really actually adequately address this dire, dire situation. Yeah. It's a movement, and that's what gives me hope. There are more and more people like mm -hmm. you, like the people that I work with through Seminary of the Wild and, and, uh, and everywhere I go, more and more people are getting it, awakening, you know, even as the, as the, the decline is getting more and more serious and devastating, there is an emergence happening and it's, it's, it's huge. <laughs> mm -hmm. It gives me hope. Well, speaking of hope, how do you hope Church of the Wild inspires and liberates its readers? Ah, I hope I hope people can see within themselves that resonant seed, that resonant seed of something they know they're called to bring into the world, that their little piece of this huge, you know, this overwhelming uh, changes and shifts that are happening, that there would be an encouragement. And I've heard from so many people like, oh, my gosh, that's how I feel. You've given words to what I already know. And so giving, I hope it offers encouragement and um, in that resonance that we each play a really, really important part. And we can only know that our little important part is effective when we know we're part of something bigger. You know, if we think we have to solve everything in our organization, in our church, in our work, whatever, like it's overwhelming and we get burnt out. But knowing that we're part of mm -hmm. a huge, beloved, interconnected beloved community that goes beyond even our species <laughs> then we then we can have hope we can know that we are in this together last question victoria how can listeners get connected to you and your work yeah i think the easiest way is just to come to my website victorialures.com or connect with uh, wildchurchnetwork.com or go on to you know order the book <laughs> online wonderful Awesome. Well, thank you so much for chatting more about the book. This, is ha this has been such a reinvigorating conversation for me. This is something that I'm so passionate about. Um, ecological justice is something that really matters mm. a lot to me, and it's something that I dive into too much probably, and it's just, uh, it's just very fascinating to me. But, uh, but I also love that you have recognized that this crisis requires a total reimagination, and that even means how we even do church. And that's something that always is some, that's something that I'm very passionate about. And I love that you have taken that on and made, you've put flesh on that. And it's just so cool to see what you're doing with Wild Church Network and everything. And so thank you so much for writing the book, and thank you so much for the work that you're doing in the world. Aw, thank you too, Mason. What a gift to meet you. If you'd like to connect with Victoria and Watashi Wa and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. Thank you.